This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer. And Ryan White is our live stream producer, and please check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. And if you're on the live stream tonight, you might notice something a little different. I'm at Zoomer. I'm at Zoomerplex, coming to you live from our flagship station in Liberty Village, Toronto. And it's great to be here. I had to come. I have no, I have no internet in, the, uh, in Thornhill in the home studio. Uh, I don't know how well you uh, rode out that storm yesterday. That was something else, wasn't it? Biblical. I know that's an overused statement. It was biblical. It, but seriously, I, and I drove right through, I think, the middle of it. I was out Elmira Way. And I was coming home from Elmira in the, um, the early afternoon, going south on Highway 85, trying to make my way down to the 401 to come home. The skies opened up, the thunder, the lightning, the whole show, and the wind kicked up, and I tell you, I thought I was going to see like a cow flying by, because that's farmland, but there were branches, good-sized branches, flying across the highway. There was a tree that came down just ahead of me, covering up one of the southbound lanes, and um, everybody was driving at about, you know, maybe 30 clicks with their hazard lights on, and it was white-knuckle, white-knuckle driving. You know what I mean by white-knuckle driving. All the way home, I saw a big 18-wheeler overturned on the 401 going westbound. Whenever I see something like that, I make the sign of the cross, you know, I hope everyone's okay. So I got home, and the power was out, and um, I was doing coast-to-coast last night, so I went down for my, uh, I call it my grandpa nap, to get ready for the show. When I got up around 5 o'clock, the, the, uh, the power was on in our house, and the internet was great. Um, it was like this, it was weird, because it was this little enclave, uh, a cluster of houses on our street that we had full power, but just a few, tor- a few doors down, 
I heard their, their generators running. And to the west of us, completely dark. To the north and the south, completely dark. But my house, our neighbor's house, a few other houses across the street were on, and that's it. Uh, and then today, this morning when I woke up, Wi-Fi, Internet, completely down and won't be back probably until Tuesday. So here I am. It's great to be here. A great uh, excuse to come and see my buddy Carlos, and uh, who I don't think I've seen in almost a year. And you can imagine the mailroom. <laughs> I, I filled my trunk with mail to take home and open. So if you wrote to me and you haven't heard from me, thanks for your patience. All right. Uh, I'm not sure. Just one more quick note. I'm not sure if my mom is listening tonight. Sometimes she stays up late and listens. She'll be 97 next month, and I'm going to see her tomorrow, and I, I plan on spending the whole day. She's not feeling too well these days, and she could use your prayers. Love you, Mom. I'll see you tomorrow. So what's in a name? You've heard that old expression many times. It turns out a lot, perhaps more than you know. So in the first hour, we're going to delve into the energy, the energy and the power behind different names and how changing one's name even can affect one's personality. Every letter in the alphabet has a specific energy to it, just like colors do. So we're going to learn how people with the same name, for example, will share similar traits. We'll learn how a person's middle name has importance as a... Um, as a bridge between the first and last names and a connection to our self-image. And last names, of course, join everyone in the family in one specific energy. We'll also talk about what are the most powerful names. In the second hour, a, uh, a variety of strange and unusual activities in Alaska, including missing airplanes and people, shipwrecks and ghost ships, Weird beings and time travelers. It's like one-stop shopping for the paranormal up there. Vortices and portals. So like the Bermuda Triangle, there is an area in Alaska, while not uh, perfectly triangular, it seems to be a nexus for high strangeness. And we'll speak with a paranormal investigator and author about that. All right. Let's talk about the energy and power of names. Mariana Korwitz is an internationally recognized and acclaimed expert on numerological and subliminal influences as applied to names, birth dates, and addresses. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in education and has long researched the relationship between mathematics and the energetic factors that impact our lives. Mariana has made appearances on the Today Show, ABC Nightline, and Fox News, and of course, on the uh, Coast to Coast AM program, which I occasionally host. Mariana is the author of Name Power 101, Addresses Count, and Cycles Count. Mariana Korwitz, welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Likewise. So you talk about the psychology of mathematics. What does that mean? Well, when we think of math, most of the time we think of numbers, addition, and subtraction. But there's really science and mathematics between so much of what we do in life. And there is actually science and mathematics behind language. And that's something we don't have to think about too much, but really applies to names and how names are interpreted and how they interact with us. 
Right. So I, 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 I think of mathematics as sort of the, the matrix that's behind everything. So is it as simple as when it comes to the alphabet, like the, is it the Pythagorean screed, like A is 1, B is 2, C is 3? That's right. So initially when we started alphabets and languages and so forth, well, initially languages were just spoken, they weren't written. And then once we started to write languages and create different symbols, then there was a sequence that was involved so that when names and words were constructed, they could have better meaning if they were put together in patterns that made sense. Even though we don't see those patterns or necessarily hear them, they're there behind the scenes working. So does the power of one's name come in the written form, in the spoken form, both? Is it different? It's really all of those. So the name itself has this pattern that's behind the scenes. It's very subliminal. And when you say the name, it reverberates. When you write the name, according, you write the symbols. And so it's the same pattern. So whichever way that name is represented or put out there, it's going to create or activate that pattern or that energy. So then what, what um, gives a name or what names then um, have more energy? Uh, are, are there certain letters in the name that give the name more energy, or is it the combination of letters? I think it's more, rather than having more energy, it's more the purpose behind a name. So as people started creating names for reasons and to support people in their different roles in life, the actual pattern of the name would represent what the person was meant to do. So if someone was supposed to be a leader, the name would be instilled with leadership qualities in the letters that come together, and that person would more readily be able to step up front and act alone and make decisions. And if someone was more in a secondary role in life, a name would be very appropriately chosen for that. Now, we've gone away from that in today's culture, but the names still have those patterns and they're still acting out. So if you have a name that makes you very, very leadership-oriented, you won't be happy unless you're in a leadership role. Oh, that's interesting. All right, so not to be overly self-indulgent here, but my name, Richard. Um, I, there's King Richard. There is, uh, you know, there, there have been... Uh, Hockey players, Rocket Richard, well, uh, Rocket Richard, that was uh, Maurice Richard, that's a last name. But well, So what is the name Richard? Well, the name Richard will encourage you to be very independent and self-sufficient, somewhat of a pioneer. So you'll always be looking to take new paths and solve problems from your own perspective. And it's a name that will also encourage you to be very intuitive, very sensitive intuitively. So that sixth sense very much aware, so when you get that gut feeling, you want to listen to it, and also will turn you in, tune you into the arts. So that could be writing, it could be acting, could be radio work, any of those things, because you can play a role really well with this name because of that intuitive quality. So as you, you, you hinted at this earlier, that if you don't follow uh, a particular path where you're, that, that, that fits your name, there will be conflict there, right? Internal there conflict. Will be. In fact, one of my clients, I do consult with people about their names and coach them around their names. She called me and said she was just really upset with her path in life career-wise, and she was an accountant. 
Um, she said she just didn't know why. She didn't like what she was doing. Well, it turned out her name was very people-oriented and partnership-oriented. So here she was working with numbers all day in very solo role, and she was really meant to work with people. Yet, when I told her about that, she said, well, my father paid for my education, so I would hate to not be an accountant. So she had to go through a situation in life where she had to determine, am I going to follow the path that's going to make me most happy, or am I going to make my dad happy? So how does it work? Could your your name, though, also influence, even if you're not familiar or aware of what your name means and the energy and power behind your name, could the energy and power of your name lead you in certain directions? So, um, you know, my name is Richard. Um, to what extent did my name and the power and energy around it influence my decision to get into radio? It's going to be there working behind the scenes, and even though it's not like a loud message that's saying, okay, go into radio, you're going to have that kind of feeling or that nudge. So everybody has that quality. It's kind of like I use music as an analogy a lot. So if you have a very soft classical music playing in the background, you're going to feel relaxed and just kind of want to mellow out. And if it's hard rock, you're going to have a different feeling. What you decide to do, of course, is up to you with those different music influences. And the same is true with the name. So you're going to feel those nudges. You're going to feel like you should be going in a certain direction. And then what you do accordingly is up to you. And um, what about when you shorten a name? If you're uh, uh, Richard, it becomes Rich or Rick or Dick. If you're Robert, you become Bob. Does that affect, and if you start using that and writing that, does that somehow change the energy? It definitely does. So people that have name choices, it's really good to take a look at what each one brings into their life. Now, if you know what each one of those different influences are, you can choose to use each name where it best suits you. In some instances, some of the nicknames or shortened forms of names really are to be avoided because they may not bring much strength to your life at all. But each time you change the spelling of a name, even if you were to say the name the same way, if the spelling changes, then the energy changes as well. And you help people, you coach people on, uh, you know, how to get in touch with the energy influences of their name, but also, uh, do you also coach them on if they're having, if they're expecting a child on how to select a name? That's right. Um, When you are, one of the biggest decisions that you make in life, biggest choices that you make, is the choice you make in the name you choose for your child. And so... In many countries, at least in ancient times, and even in some of the Asian countries still today, there are name givers who will help the parents to choose a name that will be very appropriate to their role in life, to the family orientation. Um, If it's a family that's very adventurous or more of a family that's conservative, And so when you pick that name, it's going to fit well into the circumstances and actually be balanced in the spelling so that it works well all the way around. And, of course, with names, we have our first name, which affects our personality the most, our last name, which affects everyone in the family, and then the middle name, which affects self-image. And when you put all three of those together, you get your signature, and that's going to affect your career and your finances and your travel. So when naming a baby, you want all of those things to work together well and also to work well with sound 
So you've got this big ensemble that is absolutely perfect for the child. MarianaKorwitz.com is the website. Mariana and then Korwitz is K-O-R-W-I-T-T-S. MarianaKorwitz.com. Uh, if, let's say historically, someone was not a, um, a nice person, someone, um, I don't know, was uh, the ruler of a, an empire and, and was a, or a, a, you know, a homicidal maniac, and they had a particular name, can that influence the name thereafter in a negative it's, way? It's going to influence the way people perceive the name. So when we look at names, or when I look at names, I look at the sound of the name and the association, and that association can often be developed throughout time with different people that have the name. And then, of course, there's that subliminal energy. So if someone was not a particularly good person or they did some things that were not thought of very well, then it's unlikely that that name is going to be chosen as one of the top names in popularity over a period of several years after. Uh, are, when, when a name becomes popular, is it, is it a subconscious thing? Are people gravitating towards that name, not maybe understanding the the energy of it, but they they the energy is is sort of drawing them in to, to to use that name. Yes, that's very true, and I think naming trends have changed a lot with time. Years ago, and I would say up until maybe ten years ago, people would be very conservative in the names that they chose. They wanted a name that would not have their child stand out too much. Oftentimes the name would have a lot of tradition. Sometimes it would be a name that's handed down through families. Now we're getting more and more into unique naming trends so that people want their child to actually stand apart, be unique and different. And in some instances, going beyond names that were used as first names and are now being drawn into that first name category. So you might name a child River or London after a city or as a natural resource. And so there you're kind of going into new territory. There's still going to be that energy around the name. So, for instance, if you name your, your son River, he's going to be pretty active and flowing, just like a river does. So you want to be sure that when you choose a name that's not your usual trend, that you know what that name is going to be doing. So how can, it, how can a name affect you physically? Affect you physically? Yes. Um, well, when the energy is there, you're going to respond to it. So my given name was Mary Ann, so I didn't have the A on the end of the name. And I didn't know much about names, of course, early in life. But when I became an elementary teacher, I knew that there were certain names that caused kids to be a little more active. And I wouldn't want to see them on my class list in September. So when I started studying my own name, I realized that Mary Ann had a lot of adrenaline flowing through it. So I always felt very antsy. I wanted to do 25 things at once and gas pedals always down to the floor. So physically it was affecting me. I didn't realize where that was coming from. And that's one of the reasons that I did make a slight name change by adding the A to my name. Really? That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as you changed it, did you the change when you added that extra A and became Mary Anna? Was the change uh, instantaneous? It happened pretty quickly. 
um, it the change when you change a name initially when you change it you will feel that new energy and then when you make it a legal change if you choose to do that you're going to see and feel that energy a lot more so when I made the legal change I definitely sensed the difference and it kind of calmed things down in my life which was what I was looking for to begin with hmm. remarkable remarkable um, what about people who let's say they're they're named at birth and maybe they're adopted uh, or somehow through some circumstance they lose their name and they're named something else is that likely to cause problems it can because it, once a name is put on a birth certificate that name will stay with you with its influence all through life. Even if you do make a name change, it's kind of like you have a, another chapter added to who you are. And so if you are given a certain name at birth and then you're adopted or you go through some sort of dramatic change in life where that initial name is no longer used, it's still going to be there in the background. You're still going to have that kind of layered in to the energy of who you are. In a lot of cultures, there are name change traditions. So Native American cultures and so forth, the names would be changed even in some religious circumstances when a woman would go into a convent or a man would go into a monastery. The names would be changed because it was thought that there would be an energy that would be much more conducive to being in that new community. So our names create different chapters in life. If we do change our names, even when women marry and they take on a husband's surname, they now have a different energy in their full name. So lots of shifts and changes and things happen as a result of the name energy that surrounds us. Mariana, we're going to take a time out and uh, come back and chat some more. And we'll also take questions from the uh, YouTube and Rumble live chats. Mariana Korwitz, internationally recognized and acclaimed expert on numerological and subliminal influences as applied to names, birth dates, and addresses. Back with more. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. The energy and power Behind your name, Mariana Korowitz is with us, internationally acclaimed expert on numerological and subliminal influences as applied to names, birthdates, and addresses, marianacorowitz.com. And you also have, do you still have the free name report card? I do, yes. It's on my website under free resources. And how does that work? What, uh, what, what can we find there? What does it do? You can put in your first name and then see how different traits um, work through your name. So some names are meant to encourage adventurousness. Some names are meant to encourage business ability or financial ability. So each one of those traits are graded. And so you can see how your name works out with all of those different traits. A uh, very popular um, boy's name these days, I understand, is Liam. And which sounds kind of Celtic, if I'm, I think, I think it's Celtic, is it not? I believe it is, yeah. Yeah. Why is Liam so popular these days? Well, I think um, sometimes we have um, some association with celebrities um, that would have a name. And right now I think there's a lot of trend for boys' names and even girls' names to a certain degree to keep them short and simple 
and yet have a nice flow to the name. People don't realize if they're choosing the name Liam for their son that it does create a lot of leadership capability and strength and uh, good financial um, strength there as well. So good choices all the way around with the name. I think people key into it, again, for its shortness, for some recognition with other people who have the name that are in the spotlight, and then what people sense around the name and its influence. Hmm. And for for uh, girls, Ava is back. I mean, that was very popular like in the, what, the 30s, the 20s, the 30s, I think about Ava Gardner. Um, uh, Ava's back, right? It's popular. That's right. It is coming back and has been for a couple of years now. And again, we have a short name that is easy to spell and um, has a nice flow to it as well. And this name, too, really works out well for girls because it creates a lot of sensitivity and diplomatic ability and really good with partnership and in relationships. So it's a name that serves well, looks good, and really has a feminine quality to it in the sound. Uh, okay, so I want to talk, let's talk middle names. You say that's the bridge. And most people, not most, that's not right. A lot of people, uh, they don't really use their middle name. Um, it's just, it's on the birth certificate. Um, I mean, I have a middle name, Brent. Uh, I, I don't really use it. It's on my credit card, I think. So what is the, what is the importance of a middle name, and how should we use it to make it most effective? Well, I think if we go back historically, middle names were first put into use to honor different family members. And also, if there was the tradition, often especially for boys, to name them after their fathers. So you would have a lot of juniors. Um, so the middle name would be a way to differentiate the father from the son and so forth. Um, and with girls, if we go back historically, we had a period in time where there were a couple of names that were used a lot for girls, so names like Anne or Marie. With time, what we've seen with with middle names is that they're developing more of an identity and a unique uniqueness and especially after world war ii we see more middle names being added to the whole name component process and there's a couple of things that happen at least in my study i think with with middle names the influence of the name affects us with our own self-image now you're not going to know what that influence is but it's there nonetheless and in addition, I've talked to a couple of scientists who say that in their study of brain work, that they're seeing the middle name and the influence of that name actually connecting right and left brain influences. And so there we have the creative factor and all of those things coming into play as well. So middle names becoming more popular. Sometimes there's a religious connotation. And then, of course, we have the initial of the middle name that comes to play in the full name also. So it's just not, we don't say our middle names a lot, but they're there waiting in the wings. And in some instances, people are using them a lot more today than they did years ago. So that's remarkable that the middle name is helping to connect the left and right hemispheres, which does what? It makes you more um, mentally agile. It makes you, you, you make more connections, maybe or you makes you more artistic. Yes. Yeah, so with the left brain, that's our logic. That's the part that we just use in a very objective way to get us through the day. And the right brain activity is the more creative side 
of life and what sets us in touch with our dreams and our imagination. So if we have a connection between the two, and if right and left brain are not functioning totally independently, then we can take that logic and the good reasoning and apply them to our dreams and our creative action, and everything comes together a lot more effectively and successfully. Even if you don't use your middle name a lot, just having it there somewhere, it's written down on a birth record, uh, whether you hear it or say it or write it, it still has that influence? It still has that influence, yes. So you don't have to be aware of it. Um, just the fact that it is there, it's going to be around you. Again, it's just like music or even color. Um, you may not be aware of the color influence of the walls in the room that you're in, but it's still going to affect you. And um, the same thing is true with the name. Uh, some people just use initials. Uh, I remember, like, a, there was a, a pitcher that uh, pitched here in Toronto, R.A. Dickey. R.A. Um, how does that work, then, uh, in terms of the, the power, the energy of the name? Is it lessened if you, if you just use initials? It really depends on the initials. So in language, especially in the English language, we have the consonants and we have the vowels, and they both have a purpose. So the vowels are really the life force of language, and we only have five of those, and so they carry that energy in the purpose of a word. The consonants are kind of like containers, and so they hold that energy in a certain way. And so when you put the vowels and the consonants together, then you get this outcome as a result. So if someone uses initials where there still is a vowel, so let's say it's R-A, um, that can still work because you're going to have that live, living vowel energy. But if someone uses just consonant initials like J-P, it's not going to have as much, it's going to be more of a monotone energy in your life than stereophonic. Hmm. Uh, what about your signature? I don't know if this is something you get into, but um, you know, if we, we say the name, we hear the name, you write the name, um, does your signature, uh, and some people, you know, they spend a lot of time sort of developing how they're going to sign their check or a document and so forth, does that influence the energy and the power of your name? Very much so. It plays a big factor in our lives, and most of us have several options when it comes to a signature. So we can use the name that's on our birth certificate, which would be first, middle, and last name. Or we could use the middle initial. Or we could use the first initial, middle initial, and then last name. And so if you know what each of those choices brings in an energy influence, you can choose the one that's going to be the strongest. Now, these middle or the, the full name, the signature, is what affects us most in our career and in our jobs and in our finances. So particularly good to make sure that you're choosing the one that is strongest in that regard. Here's the thing, though, Marianne. Cursive is, is becoming a, a lost art. They don't even teach that in schools anymore, as far as I know. Um, the, and for me, uh, I mean, I certainly took cursive writing in, in school, but the only time I, I, I sign my name now is, you know, on a check. Um, is, that, is that somehow weakening our energy, the fact that we don't write our names as much anymore? Well, it's one area where the names are not represented in our lives, and, and so it can weaken the influence to a degree. 
when we look at some of the different characters in English language, for instance, we look at the M, and it is the beginning letter of mountain. And, of course, the M looks like a mountain. Hmm. We can look at uh, the S, and it's the beginning letter of snake, and an S looks like a snake. So a lot in the representation of these characters was there for a reason. They're kind of like little pictographs. So when we don't write our names or sign our signatures anymore, we're missing that, although because the characters are still there in typed form, you still have the influence present. Uh, If... Your um, your name is translated, so Richard becomes Richard, or uh, whatever the la- the other language might be. Uh, does that does if your name in another language, in other words, does that change the energy? It does, and so some names are the same in different languages, and others have a different form when it goes to a different language. So you have to look at if you're functioning in two cultures in any way, then you have to look at what those two influences are and and pick. And, of course, there is that perception when we introduce ourselves um, and how common or how familiar a name is, it's going to play a role in how people relate to you. So um, taking a look at some of my clients come to me and say, well, I've relocated from a different country and I really want to be more accepted in my new environment. So how should I change my name? Should I keep it the way it was or come up with a new form? So you can take a look at that and kind of having that name evolve into a new cultural influence. All right, another break awaits. Mariana, we'll come back. And I'm learning so much here. This is absolutely fascinating. Mariana Korwitz, the energy of names. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Mariana Korwitz, internationally acclaimed expert on numerological and subliminal influences as applied to names, birth dates, and addresses. And uh, so uh, this brings us around to the surname, the last, you know, the family name. Um... And sort of the evolution of the family name is is interesting because I guess it started out, it could have been a, a physical uh, description of someone, you know, if someone, um, I don't know, had a, um, walked with a limp, that may have become somehow included in the last name, or if they lived down by the river, or if they, uh, you know, they made arrows, or, you know, they were a Fletcher, or... so. Uh, talk to me then about the, the the power and energy of the surname, the family name. The surname or family name originally was used, so again, if we go way back, they were just first names. And then as time evolved and more and more people were in a location, there was some differentiation that was needed. And so the surname was generally to talk about or would um, indicate a location just as you mentioned, down by the river or someone lived on the other side of the hill or in the valley. And oftentimes the surname would represent the trait of the family. So that would mean if everyone in the family had the surname, they would likely be very much attuned to whatever that family trait was. And the children who were being raised in that family would be more likely to be a part of that trait as they got older. And that was, of course, the real 
desire in the family is to have these um, different types of trades being handed down through generations. So there's quite a quality on the Kennedy family here in the U.S. That name Kennedy is all about public service. So we see many, many people in that family going into public service, even though their individual lives are very different. Hmm. Uh, you uh, talk about, I think it's one of the, it's the longest name. It's a German name. Uh, let me see if I'm going to try it here. I love trying. Uh, uh, Herbert Blaine Wolf Schlegel Stein Hausenbergerdorf. Yes. That is considered to be the longest surname in existence. And it was said that that name was put together to represent a lot of the areas that were a part of his, um, his family culture. So some of the different um, trades and careers and so forth that were there. Now, of course, this name was not, is not a name that you would be able to spell or say too readily. But it certainly had the purpose of representing kind of the family history of what was going on. Uh, and what happens when you, um, you know, in, in some, some cultures, the, 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 uh, the woman takes the man's name, the wife takes the husband's name. What then happens to her energy and power? The biggest shift she's going to see will be in her career, her job, and her finances because taking on that new surname is going to affect those areas in her life. Sometimes it's for the better and sometimes it's for the worse. And so um, when I work with women, I've heard many women tell me that they really didn't see a shift in their lives when they met the man who became their future husband, even if they moved in together. But once they took the different name, they noticed a difference in their career or their success or their finances. So I always recommend that you take a look. If you're going to change your name through marriage, take a look and see what you can do to make sure you are keeping the quality that you want. Now, in some instances, you may be going to a stronger name and could launch you into a whole better position in life, but it's best to know what's going to be happening as a result of that name change. Right, right. Yeah, ladies, do you want to be Mrs. Wolf Schlegelsteinhausen Burgerdorf? What about a hyphenated name? We're seeing more and more hyphenated names today. Um, I think that can allow for some meaning to take place with different members of the family or different um, aspects that people might have. Women are often hyphenating their surnames when they get married, so they keep their maiden name as the first part of the hyphenated surname and then the husband's name as the second part. This is often passed down to the children as well. So it can work quite well. It does lengthen the name, so you have to consider that uh, with the spelling and how when you're, when you're giving your name to someone. But it can also add a little more distinctiveness to the name when you're using the name overall. All right, so it's not just about names. Uh, it's also about addresses, right? Your, your physical address, your mailing address. Um, is it the number, the street name, the combination? It is mostly the number. So when it comes to addresses, so we can, we can kind of drill this all down in a lot of different ways. So, for instance, if we have a city name, that will create an energy for the city but there generally you're not going to notice too much because 
there are so many people living in the city, they're all functioning under that same influence. Any street will have a certain energy to the street itself. But for an individual building or a home, it's the number that acts like the name of that particular building. And so when I look at addresses, what I will do is I will um, take all the numbers in the address and bring it down to one digit through addition. And then that number is going to define what the environment of that particular address will bring. So if you have a particular number with the address, it may really attune itself well to socializing and having people coming in and out all the time. Another one might be very isolating. So good name or good address for a house that's off in the woods is kind of a vacation property where people just want to get away from it all. Can a name clash with the the address? They just they don't work together well? It could, yes, because if you're the kind of person who, let's say you have someone that's a very strong introvert and they like to keep to themselves and want their home to be a nice haven and oasis of quietude, and then they happen to purchase or move into a property that is all about lots of energy, lots of things happening all the time, that individual is going to feel a little uncomfortable in that particular energy, feeling like they should be up and moving constantly when they want to sit back and relax. All right, Mariana, one final time out. We'll come back and we'll get to some questions from the uh, the live chat. Mariana Korwitz stays with us, and I hope you will do the same. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, a few minutes remain with Mariana Korwitz. We're talking about the energy of names. MarianaKorwitz.com is the website. And um, let's see, let's go to the, uh, the live chat here. Um, you're gonna get a you're gonna get a kick out of these handles, uh, Mariana. These uh, these YouTube live chat handles. Flowtech73 is in the Rumble chat and asks. I was hoping Mariana could help me with my name and a set of numbers I've been seeing. Uh, Edwin is the name and eight two two eight eight two eight zero two. So a lot of eights and twos and a zero or other combinations. Edwin and then these eights and twos. What's happening? Oh, and also he, uh, Edwin mentions he was born April 16th, 1973. I don't know if that uh, figures into this. April 16th, 73. What's happening there with Edwin? Yes, I do look at birth dates as well because that's kind of like the hard drive on the computer. It's unchangeable. So the way the name interacts with the birth date characteristics are another whole facet to what you can look at in your personality. So with Edwin, this is going to be a person who has a lot of high-charged adrenaline in his life and be very independent as well. The kind of person, if you tell him he can't do something, he's going to show you that he can and probably has a lot happening all the time. So focus could be a bit of a challenge. When you start to see numbers or a different series of numbers, it can give you a little message if you can 
understand what the numbers mean and then interpret them with the eight that's all about reward in life and entrepreneurial spirit. So there could be some rewards coming down the road for Edwin, and the two is all about partnership. So rewards coming down the road in partnership with other people for the things that he has stepped up and done independently and with a lot of courage. All right, Edwin, I hope that uh, helps you out, Flotex73. Uh, speaking of uh, handles and nicknames, um, what, is a, what is a nickname, if your nickname sort of takes over and it's not even a short form of your name? Let's say, for example, Richard Starkey, Ringo Starr, born Richard Starkey, but everyone t- calls him Ringo. I don't know, maybe his wife calls him Richard, but everyone calls him Ringo. What is that? Does that lessen the power of his original name? It doesn't lessen it, but it changes it. So the name that we use the most often is the one that has the most influence. And for a lot of people, we evolve into different names as we get older. We work into different aspects of a career. So whichever name you're using the most or where you use that name. So if you use a particular name at work and then use a different name at home, that influence is going to differ with different people. I know you added an A to Mary Anna to change the energy. Have you ever come across when you, you, you recommended that they change their name entirely? Not necessarily their surname, but uh, they change their name from Peter to John or something, you know, fairly traumatic? Yes, I do have clients who come to me and say, I, there's just everything in my life seems to be going wrong. I just can't get things on track the way I want to. And they notice that when they take a look at what their name is doing, it's like, oh, no, that's not what I want to be happening. So in those instances, we can take a look at some other name options, a totally different name. It's important to know what that's going to do going forward, and that's one of the reasons I work with people on coaching, so that once you get to that new name energy, you know that it's doing things in a different way and you're adjusting to it and reading it correctly. Uh This is an interesting handle again. Toxic Canadian asks, what does my name represent? It's Suzanne, and can I add an A to the end to change my rotten luck? Maybe you should change your handle, Toxic Canadian. I mean, (laughs) that can't help. No, that's true. So, Suzanne, and I'm assuming that what she is looking at is the possibility of going to Susanna. Right. The assumption? Yes. Okay. So um, with Suzanne, what's going to happen is she's going to have a very, very independent streak in her life. And for some women, that can work fine. And for others, it feels a bit isolating. So feeling like, well, I'm just not finding the partners in life that I want, or I'm having to go alone too much, that kind of thing can be a factor. Now, in going to Susanna, there are a couple of different spellings. So if you're going to take Susanna with an H, So same name and then A-H at the end. You're going to have a lot more adrenaline and activity in your life. And if you're just working with um, Susanna with an A, that is going to create more of a solid, traditional feeling in life and uh, much more traditional overall. So it just depends what you're looking for across the board. So if Suzanne says, I just have had it with all that independence, she can look at some of the other possible spellings. All right. Hope that helps, Susanna. Susanna. Uh, private name asks, my address growing up was my birth year backwards. What might that mean? Oh, that's interesting. Now, what was that again? 
their their address, I guess, when they grew up, the ho- their their childhood home, the address was their birth year backwards. Huh. Okay. Well, again, numbers have a role to play in our lives, and we sometimes see those numbers repeating. And so our birth year is very important. We repeat it a lot with our birth date throughout life. And so that association can take place with the home that we live in, and sometimes it's just that subliminal effect that creates that attraction. All right. Uh, Let's see. Jim Sharp. Well, we, you sort of addressed this earlier, but maybe he missed it. Uh, does the short form of a name take on a different meaning? It definitely does. And so with this individual's name being Jim, and generally the given name here would be James, they're going to be quite different. So um, with Jim, this is a name that will create that high adrenaline, good for sales and really wanting to get out there and do lots of different things. Um, pedals always down to the floor, morning till night, um, sometimes can feel a little bit exhausting with the energy. And with James, it's more of a creative quality. So he will be looking to be more creative in life and be uh, very communicative with other people. So more independence with Jim, high charge, sales quality, and more people-oriented and communicative with James. All right, uh, Jim Sharp, hope that helps. Um, you say that people with the same first name are going to share certain characteristics. Could they also, I mean, we'll get into the different, different types of characteristics, uh, if time allows, but can they, can they share physical characteristics? Sometimes they can, because I think a lot of the influences in life, the different energies in life, do affect us physically. So there are certain names, for instance, that will encourage physical activity. So if I take a look at some athletes and, and see some of the names that repeat in athletic performance, um, that, of course, is going to encourage someone to do more building their body and fitness and all of those types of things. So whatever that and other names will encourage someone to really be aware of their physical appearance and want to pre- present themselves very favorably. So it can affect appearance. Uh, so if you've got... Um uh, women named Debbie, what other traits would they share? Not necessarily physical. Okay, and this would be, I'm assuming, Debbie, D-E-B-B-I-E? Yes. Uh, this is a name that is very independent, again, so for a woman, sometimes good, sometimes not preferred. But Debbies are going to be independent. They're going to see things from a very personal position, and this name is meant to have them learn their lessons on their own in life. And yet they're going to have a very um, loving quality as well and want to do a lot of giving to others and specializing in what they do. Big challenge for Debbie is to receive as much as she gives. So that's the whole factor around unconditional love, equal giving, equal receiving. If um, you wanted your child, your unborn child, uh, to be incredibly independent, let's say, uh, you know, it's going to be a boy, you're hoping that he'll be maybe creative, a writer, or a painter, what would be some good names? Well, if we're looking at... um 
Now, of course, with the career, you're going to be blending that with the last name as well. But if you're just looking at independence, and a lot of parents do like that quality in a boy's name. They want their sons to have that independent quality, stand alone, be a leader, um, not really find themselves doing what other people are asking them to do. Some of the names that can do that for a boy are named like Peter, Dan, so not Daniel, but Dan, and you can give the shortened form of names to a new baby, and that way it stays that way. Ward, which is a name that is becoming more popular now, W-A-R-D. So all of these names will be very independent, very physically oriented, and then you can build on that with a full name. Uh, All right, so um, the um, free name therapy guide, that's at the website on the homepage, MarianaKorwitz.com. Um, and then if, we, if they need to contact you for some uh, name therapy coaching, they just use the contact uh, form there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, the name, in the meantime, we have uh, Name Power 101, Addresses Count, Cycles Count. How do we get a copy of those books? Right now, I am in the process of doing the second edition of Name Power 101, so I'm hoping to have that ready mid to late summer. Um, but addresses count and cycles count are available on my website. Um, we didn't talk about cycles, but we do really um, in life. We have cycles by the year, by the month, by the day. So knowing what to do on in each of those situations can be expressed in the cycles count book. So those are all available on my website. All right. There is another website, thebabynamingexperience.com, and uh, there's uh, tremendous resources there. Choosing names. Baby Naming Lab, uh, Behavioral Naming, and uh, you're available there for consultations as well. Correct. Absolutely. Mariana, this was absolutely fascinating. We'll have to do this again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Would love to. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. Mariana Korwitz. MarianaKorwitz.com, TheBabyNamingExperience.com. I've uh, hooked up to, uh, linked up. To Mariana's uh, website, MarianaCorwitz.com. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on her name. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, mysteries of the great state of Alaska. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, 
your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Cagina is our technical producer. Ryan White is our live stream producer. Take a moment, check out my YouTube and Rumble channels, Strange Planet. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Of this hour, the Alaska Triangle, which is an area that's, I guess, somewhat akin to the Bermuda Triangle. It's got its unsolved mysteries and disappearances. And uh, my guest believes the region is a hot spot for unusual activity because of vortex or magnetic energy coming out of the Earth's core. Planes have vanished, and some have theorized they have traveled into a portal. And a time permitting, we'll also get into shadow people and other paranormal activity. Mike Ricksecker is the author of the Amazon best-selling A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide to Shadow People, eight historical or eight historic paranormal books, and the esoteric tome Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. He's appeared on multiple television shows and programs as a paranormal historian, including Travel Channel's The Alaska Triangle, Discovery Plus's Fight uh, Fright Club, Animal Planet's The Haunted, Bio Channel's My Ghost Story, and uh, Ren TV's Out of Russia, Mystery, Mysteries of Mankind. Mike also produces his own internet supernatural-based shows on the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel and is the producer and director of the docu- docu-series The Shadow Dimension, available on several streaming platforms. And on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, Mike hosts the Edge of the Rabbit Hole live stream. What a great name. Uh, and the Connecting the Universe interactive class through the Connected Universal, or sorry, Connected Universe portal, respectively. Haunted Road Media is also his own paranormal and supernatural book publishing and video production company, representing a number of paranormal authors, winning the award for excellent media in the paranormal field at the 2019 Shockfest Film Festival. And uh, uh, he's also, as if that's not all enough, what a busy man. He's the author-editor of a number of books, including Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, Deadly Airs, The Inscription of Evil Times, Ghosts of Maryland, Ghost Story and Case Files, Volume 1, Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma, Encounters with the Paranormal, Campfire Tales, Midwest, and A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide, to shadow people. Wow, Mike Ricksecker, you're a busy man. How are you? <laughs> Doing pretty well, Richard. I uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, pretty busy. Um, it's been a long week, and I just got back from a three-day event, uh, the Paracycon event down at the Ohio State Reformatory. So, uh, But yeah, still going. Had to jump right on here and talk with you this evening, and I'm really happy for that. Uh, likewise. Great to have you. Uh, are you in Alaska? No, I'm, I'm not in Alaska. I did spend three years up there, uh, 1992, 1995, when I was uh, part of the U.S. Air Force. And then for the Alaska Triangle television show, uh, it was a real treat that they flew me back up there so that we could film the show. And uh, the Alaska Triangle, uh, geographically, can you kind of give us um, the, the configuration or the, uh, the, the border? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it stretches from Juneau, which is the southernmost point up to Anchorage right in the middle and then all the way to the northernmost uh, Yukiavik 
is the name of the town. It used to be Barrow, uh, but they changed the name back to the native Inuit a few years ago. And the compass is about 180,000 square miles. Wow. Wow. 180,000 square miles. Most of it wilderness, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah. Alaska's pretty remote. Uh, I mean, it has Juneau, Anchorage, Fairbanks is in the middle there. Uh, and those are really the three major cities in Alaska. It's uh, a very sparsely populated state. How does that compare to the um, footprint of the Bermuda Triangle? Um, they're comparable, uh, really. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the the dimensions, uh, if you look at like the angles of what they consider the triangles, a little bit different uh, with Bermuda as, as it goes from uh, San Juan to Bermuda and then, of course, to, to Miami. Now, when we call it a triangle, I mean, we're picking three major points of an area that, um, that tends to have a lot of activity, but it's... You know, this activity stretches outside of, of those definitive boundaries. I mean, in, in other words, the boundaries aren't as definitive as those points. And how far back do these uh, do this um, unusual activity within the, the Alaska Triangle begin? How far back did you trace it? Um, yeah, it's a good question, you know, because Alaska is a relatively new state. And, you know, we've been, uh, you know, We've been interacting up there since uh, maybe the 1700s. Some of the reported activity that we've seen dates back into the late 1800s. But when you get into the native Alaskan legend and lore and some of the activity that they reported, now you're talking back, you know, hundreds, even, you know, a thousand years. And if you get into, like, if you look at some of the giant lore uh, that, that the native Inuit have, now we're talking tens of thousands of years. Tens of thousands. And what is the first documented, recorded, um, let's say, disappearance, plain disappearance in uh, the mysterious Alaska Triangle? Yeah, some of these date back into the 1920s. I don't remember the specific date offhand. I think it was 1928 where uh, one of these planes went missing. Of course, you know, you're talking an older archaic airplane. Uh, but some of the more significant ones, you know, 1950, a Douglas Skymaster uh, carrying 44 uh, Air Force personnel went missing completely without a trace. The uh, the most famous one was the 1972 uh, Boggs Baggage disappearance, which was carrying House Majority Leader Hale Boggs at the time, as well as uh, Alaska Congressman Nick Baggage. Uh, and so you have some really high-profile cases there, but Planes go missing quite often up there. Um, and in fact, I was just talking with an, uh, a person this weekend who had a, a family member whose plane went missing many years ago. And they still, you know, have never found a trace of it. Uh, you mentioned Boggs. Hale Boggs was also in the, a member of the, uh, the Warren Commission that investigated the JFK assassination. He was one of the... A lot of people think, oh, the Warren Commission was a slam dunk. It was, it was unanimous. No. I think it was, uh, was it four to three? Uh, Hale Boggs was one of the dissenting voices. And some have tried to make that connection that, um, that Hale Boggs' plane disappearance was, you know, somehow connected to his views on the Kennedy assassination. Now, there's also a, a legend. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you can 
weigh in on this or not, but and I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but it's often repeated that the person who drove Hale Boggs to the um, to the airport before he disappeared was William Jefferson Clinton. <laughs> Have you heard that story? Is there any truth to that? Um, I don't know if there's really any truth to that, but um, you know, since you're on the conspiracy theory aspect of this with with uh, Hale Boggs, yes, he dissented against the Warren Commission. Uh, he he made some enemies uh, in in the political circles, and so there was an interesting report that came out uh, a few years ago. It was actually fairly recent. It was uh, maybe eight, ten years ago. And there was an individual who came forward to give some information about um, some different nefarious acts and, and crimes that he had partaken in in Alaska way back in the day. He was he was getting older and wanted to, to fess up. And he talked about a lot of different crimes. One of them, however, dealt with the Hill, uh, the Hill Boggs, Nick Begich disappearance in which uh, he stated that his job he was taking up you know, all these th- these different side jobs. And one of them was to load up a uh, some sort of briefcase or package onto that airplane. Just put it on there, walk away, mm-hmm. which is what he did. Of course, the plane disappeared. Somebody had informed him later on that this package actually contained an explosive. Mm. And so they, you know, people wanted a reinvestigation of this case. The authorities never went anywhere with it. Uh, their stance was that, well, you know, we we scoured that area. It was at the time it was the largest search and rescue mission in U.S. history. They even had spy planes out there looking for for this uh, for this wreckage, which there was none. It just completely disappeared. And since then, we're talking fifty years ago. In fifty years' time, you know, other planes have have either gone down or gone missing in the area, and they have never found any scrap whatsoever of the Boggs baggage plane. And so they said, you know, if there was an explosion uh, of this plane, at some point we would have found some shrapnel or uh, pieces of metal or something uh, to to give us some evidence that this explosion happened. And they, they never found that. So, you know, take for it what you will. Was you know, was there really an explosive on that plane that brought it down, or was there some other means that it just completely disappeared? 16,000 people have mysteriously vanished in Alaska. Most of those in planes, or how? Um, no, it's an, it's an assortment. Um, you know, you have a lot of people, and, and some of these disappearances you know, are just legitimate people do get lost in the woods, they get mauled by a bear, there are kidnappings, things like that. Uh, the number 16,000 is, it's a high number, especially for a very sparsely populated state like Alaska. You're talking, uh, you know, Alaska as a state has about roughly the same popula- population as the city of San Francisco. Uh, so there, there's not there's not a whole lot. I mean, San Francisco is a large city in a very large state, but um, yeah, Alaska itself, uh, you know, does not have a, a lot of people. So 16,000 is a high percentage uh, of, of people that have gone missing. And some of these you know, are actually rather public. So I know David Paulides has done a lot of mm-hmm. work here on people that go missing in the woods. And that happens uh, up there as well. But uh, a, a pretty famous case uh, back in uh, 2012, Michael Lemaitre, it was during what's called the Mount Marathon race. Uh, 
which is held in Seward, Alaska every year. And he went running up the mountain just like everybody else, never came back down. They have no idea what happened to him. Again, they scoured the areas. They're thinking, okay, did he fall off the path somewhere, hurt himself? They never found any evidence of him anywhere. I have no idea what happened to him in the middle of a public race. Um, what is the, um, when, when you spend time inside the triangle, I mean, is there a noticeable change in energy? I mean, do you get a, a bad vibe when you step foot in the, inside the triangle? What's it like? Well, I mean, when I first stepped in the triangle, this is 1992, um, I was, I was pretty well shocked. I mean, I was a young kid, so I was, <laughs> I was getting kind of shell shocked anyway of, uh, you know, being away from home for the first time and all that. But, uh, when I first stepped off the plane, it was November, November 1st, 1992, a couple months beforehand, uh, Mount Spur across the Cook Inlet from Anchorage and Elmendorf Air Force Base had just erupted. So there was still ash falling from the sky, kind of mixed in uh, with, with the snow, uh, which was just a real culture shock for me. You know, we're having to cover up computers and things like that at night so that the, uh, the ash wouldn't you know, damage them. A lot of earthquakes up there. Um, yeah, the energy itself... Is uh, is really palpable. Uh, it's you know the U.S. Department of the Interior in 1965 did a uh, did a survey up there covering about 100,000 square miles. Now Alaska itself is over 600,000 square miles, so they only covered about a sixth of the state, but it's still a pretty sizable chunk. And in that 100,000 square miles, they did uh, they detected what they called these magnetic characters and five distinct ones. And within these magnetic characters, they described, in some cases, negative anomalies. So this is you know, our government conducting scientific surveys of the land and finding this uh, strange magnetism that's there. You also have the, you know, what, what's causing the aurora borealis, which is you know, the solar flares from the sun. And around the poles of our planet, the magnetic shield that protects us from these flares is thinner, which is why we see a lot of these auroras. And the strong ones uh, penetrate even further. And every you know, 11 years, we have those mass coronal ejections that uh, you know, people talk about you know, could wipe out an uh, you know, entire electric grid. So really, you have this whole soup and cocktail of these different energies, you know, seismic, volcanic, uh, the magnetic energy welling up from the ground, as well as the solar flare activity that just you know, caused some really strange things to happen. So is it, um, I mean, there are other locations around the world, like the Skinwalkers Ranch. Um, people talk about uh, the Hudson Valley, a lot of UFO activity there. There's something to do with uh, maybe the, um, the mineral uh, component in the soil um, or, as you mentioned, magnetic activity. Uh, does it then become... It's not just about disappearances, right? It's it becomes sort of this one-stop shopping, you know, for for all paranormal activity. So not only do you have disappearances, you also have UFOs, cryptids. Is it is it all there in one in one place? Yeah, you have a lot of different things happening. Um, kind of like you're you're saying there, the uh, you know you have these geological features, uh, you know the. You have the magnetism of the Earth's core that's 
constantly churning and is, is welling up from below. And as it passes through different metals and minerals in the soil, as that magnetism interacts with those elements, it creates different magnetic anomalies. And in these areas, like you mentioned, Skinwalker, there's the Bridgewater Triangle, uh, the Dragon Triangle out in um, uh, the Japan area, they have these different effects. So, yeah, it's not just missing airplanes and people. Uh, you have heightened paranormal activity. You have a lot of uh, UFO activity that is reported. You have these different cryptid sightings. You have things that we could call time slips. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things going on in these areas. The thing is, is that it's it's heightened. There's more of it going on. We have paranormal activity and UFO sightings all over the world, but in these locations, there seems to be more of that. Mike, what's the the most unusual or frightening thing that you experienced inside the uh, Alaska Triangle? Um, yeah, there were a couple of things. Now, one that I just want to put on the table first that was just kind of shocking, um, which wasn't a personal experience, but happened while I was up there. Uh, it was April 1993, and there was an airplane, it's a cargo uh, jet, taking off from the Anchorage airport. And it was about 1,500 feet in the air, and the engine, one of the engines, just fell right off of the airplane and landed in a supermarket parking lot. Oh, dear Fortunately, Lord. nobody was hurt. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was crazy. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, landed on the backside of the parking lot. Even the you know, shrapnel that rained down from the sky from this thing um, was crashing through the roofs of people's houses and into apartment buildings and things like that. Nobody, somehow, someway, nobody was ever hurt. Plane ended up landing back at uh, the Anchorage airport, and they said that it was some sort of you know structural mishap but yeah you kind of wonder you know a, a jet engine just falling off a plane is really really crazy so that was just shocking news while i was there but i did have some personal experiences while i was there now like i mentioned i was stationed at elmendorf air force base 1992 1995 uh the first year i was basically just waiting for my security clearance to come in those second two years I was uh, positioned in the basement of the Alaska Command Building. There's a communication center down there. I worked on computers, and uh, we were working on command and control systems. So uh, this is you know, transferring data, messages, things like that, uh, between commanders at different bases, send out orders, things like that. In that computer center, and especially in the back office areas, we witnessed a lot of shadow activity. So shadows starting about, uh, you know, you could be sitting in your chair and all of a sudden you get this like creepy feeling, okay, something's going on, something's up. And then out of the corner of your eye or you turn and you look and all of a sudden there's this, sh what we'd call a shadow figure walking down the hall. Looks like a human being, translucent, and it would just either go into a wall, disappear, go down the hall, you'd never see it again. Some of these things are darting into a... Uh, uh, is a little back office area behind the computer center that had all these old printers. They like to dart in there. Uh, so this was something that a lot of us saw. We really couldn't talk about it too much because if uh, you know, your superiors kind of heard you talking about some of these different unusual things, you know, like the paranormal activity, ghosts, you might find yourself down at mental health. 
which isn't a good thing because if you go down at mental health and they deem that you're not stable, you would have your security clearance pulled, which is definitely not a good thing because, um, you know, that keeps you in your position. Right, right. And in uh, learning, you know, things that you're there to learn and, and to, and to uh, perform your duties. So it was really kind of just discussed amongst us. Okay, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Or like with my supervisor one time when we had our first conversation, when I was first stationed there, um, you know, I just, as we're talking, saw a shadow pass by the office door, and he noticed that I saw it. And all he simply said was, yeah, that happens here. And that was it. That's as much as he left it at. Uh, But... Some of the uh, the lower-ranking individuals, such as myself, uh, but the stories that they were passing around at the time was that what we were witnessing were were spirits from people who had passed away long ago. The idea was that this building had once been a hospital, and this basement area that we were at was the morgue, and the uh, what we called the rack room, where we had these you know, racks of different computer equipment, patch panels, that sort of thing. This was where they housed the coolers. Now, when I did research for my book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, you know, I wanted to confirm that story. This was something that you know I had you know, been told back in the day. Mike, and, pardon you know, the interruption. Confirm... I've got to. Sorry for the interruption. I got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. We'll pick up on this story. Shadow people at the uh, the military base. Mike Ricksecker, the author of Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Mike Ricksecker, author, researcher, filmmaker. His uh, latest is Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. And, um, Mike, before the break, you were talking about shadow people uh, in the basement where you worked in this... uh, U.S. Uh, military base. It used to house a morgue. Uh, so your thoughts are that this was the uh, these are, these shadow people are um, what spirits of the uh, the dear, dearly departed. I mean, because shadow people. I think of shadow people as being something interdimensional, but not your run of the mill sort of like ghost or apparition. Or am I wrong? Well, uh, they are an assortment of different things, and that was the original idea uh, that these were, were spirits of you know, people from the morgue. The, the problem was when I did the research for the, the building, I discovered that the building was only ever used for command. It never was a hospital, so the, the story that was being passed around uh, 30 years ago was, was incorrect. So it was, it was their way of trying to explain what was going on, and ah. that, was, that was the story they put together. So it, it started making me ask the question, okay— if these aren't actually human spirits, what shadow entities can be, and we can talk about that, uh, you know, what you know, what was going on there? And 
I started thinking this was more of a you know some sort of time slip because I've seen this at other locations and, and in other cases where uh, what's being observed is another moment in time and it's kind of passing through our moment that our moment that we're witnessing in this other moment uh, from back in whether it's the past or the future you know, are resonating at the same frequency and we're getting a glimpse of that. Uh, to answer the other question, you know, about, about shadow entities, they can be an assortment of different things. Sometimes it's just a human spirit. They can't fully manifest as an apparition. They can, uh, I, I believe a true shadow person, uh, like you were saying, is, a, is some sort of interdimensional being. Uh, some of these are actually uh, you know, ETs, extraterrestrials, which is, uh, you know, I was on Ancient Aliens there a couple months ago. Uh, they can be astral projections or like I was just kind of talking about their time slips. So these can be a variety of different things. Uh, there is, um, speaking of aliens, there is uh, um, a rumor that there is an ET, ET base up there uh, in, inside the triangle, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there could be several uh, ET bases there, but probably the, the most famous story here is, is Mount Hayes. Uh, there was some remote viewing done by Pat Price back in the day. He was a famous remote viewer during the 1970s for uh, Project Stargate. And uh, a, a lot of the, uh, the hits that he was getting uh, you know, correlated very, very well with, uh, with intelligence that we were receiving uh, you know, when we were trying to remote view uh, you know, Russian assets and things like that, the old Soviet Union. But he came forward one day to help put off you know, Stanford Research Institute with a list of different locations. He had done some remote viewing on his own and said, you might have an interest in these. And one of these locations was Mount Hayes. And uh, in his observations, uh, he had detected some sort of alien presence there within the mountain. Uh, he had witnessed some different technology between you know, different computer equipment, oscilloscopes, weather equipment, that sort of thing. But he also, uh, within the mountain for the personnel that were that was working on this equipment, he witnessed what he called these super humanoid type beings, and his description of them were very alien-like. Now, he died under very mysterious means. And over the years, uh, people who ran Project Stargate on occasion would give these coordinates of Mount Hayes to various remote viewers, and they remarkably came up with, with some very similar ideas, stories, and what we would call hits that really helped to substantiate uh, uh, Pat Price's initial impressions of Mount Hayes. Would this be an underground base? Is it underneath the mountain? This, yeah. Yeah, this would be an underground base. It would be underneath the, the mountain. Uh, there's a lot of UFO activity around the area, uh, but there's, there's no road that goes there. Uh, for the Alaska Triangle television show that I was a part of, uh, they, they uh, flew James Fox, James Fox up there. And uh, they landed him on a, uh, you know, a little Cessna plane onto one of the glaciers that's right there on Mount Hayes. And, you know, trying to have a little bit of a look around. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, very remote area. And this base is supposed to be in the mountain. And um, is it rumored that there is, is there cooperation between the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. military and uh, the, the ETs in this base? Or... Um, I mean, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other personnel that Pat Price had observed 
uh, were actual U.S. military personnel, uh, kind of mixed branches, but it seemed like a lot of Air Force, and I believe some Navy was mixed in there as well. Uh, but uh, but but everybody you know got really concerned, of course, about the, the the ETs that he witnessed. So they were having some sort of joint operation there together between our military and the ETs. Do you think that that could explain some of the disappearances, the presence of these uh, this ET base? Um, it could. I mean, you know, we have a lot of uh, ET abductions now. Whether they were uh, you know, personnel from this particular base that were abducting them. We don't know. We can't verify that because there have been several uh, you know, UFO sightings uh, throughout Alaska over the decades. Uh, so, you know, like I kind of mentioned the uh, Douglas Skymaster earlier. Uh, that was 1950. Well, a couple days beforehand, there were UFO sightings around the Kodiak area that lasted for several hours. Uh, the Navy observed these between a uh, a, a Navy uh, recon pilot and then one of the uh, ships that was in the area. There were several witnesses on the ships uh, that that witnessed this phenomenon. That was a couple of days before that disappearance. Also, a couple of days afterward, there were witnesses on the Elmendorf Air Force Base that uh, saw UFO activity. So you see a lot of UFO activity around these disappearances as well. It don't necessarily have to you know, specifically correlate with Mount Hayes, but UFO activity in the area nonetheless. And what about reports of abductions inside the Triangle? Um, abductions do happen. Uh, one that was really interesting, in, it, it's hard to say whether it's you know, ET-related or cryptid-related or maybe almost the same thing. Um, he had a little boy that, that went missing some years back, uh, about 20 years ago. And he just, it's going to sound silly to say, but he just kind of magically appeared uh, out in the wilderness one day, there were some hunters that were in the area, and they all just all of a sudden just noticed him standing there amongst these bushes. Now there were no tracks uh, up to the boy. He just suddenly appeared there, and it, it's not like he walked there because there were no tracks in the snow. So you know, they they brought him to safety, uh, and you know started asking him, okay, you know where you know, where did you come from? Where have you been? You know, what happened? And he described that he had been taken, he had been abducted into uh, the mountains, uh, the Wrangell Mountains. And within this mountain, there he met these these small people. Um, you know, they may have been gray. Some people may call them gnomes or you know, a lot of different terms uh, for these things. And the native Inuit have some different legends for these for these smaller people. But he also met this other little girl there that uh, she claimed that she had been within this mountain there for 40 years. But she hadn't aged at all because she was still a little girl. After a few days of being there, for whatever reason, these little people, whether they're the greys or gnomes or whatever they, they may have actually been, they decided to let the boy go. And then there he appeared uh, before the hunters. And this was reported in the newspapers up there. This wow. was actually a legitimate news story. Wow, that's remarkable. Um, I, I have Mary Joyce on the program from time to time. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mary's work, and she's yeah. written about the, the Cherokee little people. Um, so it sounds like you know there, there's a tradition of uh, Native American tradition of little people all over the place. Do you th- are they uh, just an, another... 
another branch of the human tree, or are they? Do you think that they are in fact ETs? Hey, that's a good question because uh, we have found evidence of of smaller. Uh, humanoid people on our planet. Uh, it's kind of come back into the news here recently, but 20 years ago uh, in the, on the island of Flores in uh, Indonesia, they found you know, what people kind of dubbed the Hobbit, right. uh, Hobbitan people. And there's a, a book coming out here, I forget the anthropologist's uh, name, but through collecting stories from the, the native Leo people on the island, he believes that there still may be pockets of these smaller humans in the area uh, on that island. And I, I find that really fascinating because um, you, you have all kinds of people that write books about you know, whether it's the little people or uh, you know, maybe it's Bigfoot or, or something like this, some of these different cryptids, and they get scoffed at. But, you know, this guy's an anthropologist, and he's gonna, going to write a book strictly on these are stories I collected, and I believe they're still there. So I find that kind of ironic. But, uh, but yeah, there could be... You know, pockets of small people like that still on this planet. But we also have the reports of you know, smaller extraterrestrial type beings that you know, either they've abducted people or they just stand and watch and observe, study humanity, that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it's hard to know which one we're actually dealing with. And then there are the giants, and we'll get to those yeah. on the other side. Mike Ricksecker, author, researcher, filmmaker, MikeRicksecker.com, the website, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. We'll also uh, dip into some questions from the YouTube live chat next. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, Mike Ricksecker stays with us, and we're talking about uh, Alaska's mysterious triangle. We mentioned the 16,000 people that have mysteriously gone missing across its landscape um, over the years, but uh, I'm just reading a blurb from the book. It says here, since 1988. Is that 16,000 since 1988? Yes, 16,000 since 1988. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that takes it into a whole new dimension. I was thinking, yeah. like, through, you know, through, the, through recorded history, maybe 16,000. But in, the, in, in less than 35 years, 16,000 people, I mean, that's just, you know, beyond the pale. All right. Yeah, the, the number is astronomical. It outpaces every other state in the country. Uh, so there be giants in the triangle. Tell me about them. Yeah, it's, uh, you know... Interesting. This is, uh, I hadn't gotten too deep into giant research, kind of surface level. Um, you know, it's always, you know, interested in some of the lore. Of course, you have the, you know, ties back to some of the biblical stories. So kind of surface level interest. But when I started doing research for this book, it just sparked a whole new uh, interest for me. There are a lot of interesting Native American legends about giants coming over from Siberia. It's a very, very fascinating uh handwritten book that was put together by uh, a native Inuit back in the 1930s. His English name was Michael Kazimnook, uh, but he was a, a native Inuit, and he wanted to compile all the Inuit legends before he had passed away. So he hand-wrote out 500 pages of, of these stories and legends, and many of these were giant stories. And uh, to me, there, there was certainly a fascination of talking about uh, giants coming over from Siberia, of course, crossing over the land bridge. Because we've seen lately 
uh, in the news these you know, reports of the uh, Denisovan remains that have been found, and these appear to be larger humanoid-type people that lived uh, in Siberia and then down in the uh, Tibet region. Right, technologically or, you know, advanced. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They wore fine jewelry and played musical instruments, mm -hmm. and some even suggest they had like, almost like power tools, things like that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's truly fascinating. It, there's so much of our history that we've lost, and you know the uh, traditionalists really don't want to acknowledge that, but we keep finding more and more of it. So, you know, I was trying to draw some of those parallels and lines of okay, are some of these giants that are in these legends were they possibly Denisovans that? that uh, came over the land bridge with some of the, the other people. Some of the other giant legends that, uh, that he mentioned talked about some of these giants that were interbreeding with the humans, uh, with the, the human females, to produce these other giant-like uh, beings. And so it really harkened back to the stories of, of the Nephilim. That you had, you know, the watchers that were uh, that were mating with the human women and producing these giants, and the, the the way that he wrote out the stories were very, very similar to the Nephilim story. So that was fascinating to me. That wait a minute, so you're telling me that this story that you know traditionally you know, comes out of the Middle East, we're finding this same story in Alaska. That um, really just made the whole world a lot smaller. I'll say, I'll say. Uh, let's get to the YouTube live chat. Thinker asks, what do you know about the pyramids in Alaska and how do they affect the triangle? Pyramids. Yeah, that's a, que uh, yeah, that's a question I keep getting uh, a lot lately. That was, um, you know, episode one of season two of the Alaska Triangle. Uh, and so, yeah, the, uh, the Black Pyramid, uh, it's an interesting story. Um, unfortunately, most of it's just anecdotal. But in the early 1990s, there was an, China was doing some nuclear testing, and from these blasts, they knew that they were going to be getting some uh, you know, seismic shocks uh, throughout the world. So, geologists in Alaska had set up you know, their equipment to uh, to detect these shocks, and through this, uh, they found through the shock waves this pyramidal structure under. Uh, Mount Denali it used to be known as Mount McKinley. They changed it back to Mount Denali. Mm -hmm. So this story aired in Anchorage uh, during the early 1990s. There was a uh, an individual, Doug Munchler, who uh, was uh, in the Army, worked on Fort Richardson, and saw this story. Started calling up friends and family. Hey, did you, did you see this story? You know, look, you know, for another uh, for the station to air it again, or another station uh, that may air the story. Nobody was finding the story, so you know, it really perplexed him. So he went down to the uh, to the television station and asked, "Okay, you know, I saw this story, but I'm not seeing any follow up. What's going on with it?" They claimed that they never aired it. He was really disappointed. They just said, "No, we don't know what you're talking about. We didn't air it, et cetera, et cetera," and basically asked him to leave the bu the building. Well, as he's walking out of the building, there was a junior staffer that approached him and said, well, you know, pulled him aside, kind of secretly, like he said, well, we actually did air uh, this story, except there were some other men who came in earlier and confiscated the tapes oh, and made oh, off of them. Oh, wow. We we're not allowed to talk about it. So kind of like almost men in black type mm -hmm. of a moment here, you know, some sort of, sort of cover-up. And so you've seen stories like this over the years that, you know, 
people have talked about contributed to what may be going on there under Mount Denali with this black pyramid. The idea is that uh, this was, you know, some sort of power plant, you know, kind of almost like, uh, you know, the idea of the Giza pyramid being a, a power plant and was able to harness enough power to be able to provide electricity for it, not just there in Alaska, but also extending into Canada. Uh, the, the pyramid is supposed to be, you know, very, uh, the, the stone is supposed to be very dark and black in nature, which is uh, why they call it the dark pyramid or the black pyramid. All right, Mike, another uh, timeout awaits. On the other side, back to some more YouTube live chat questions, more of our conversation about Alaska's mysterious triangle. Mike Ricksecker stays with us. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. All right. This is a uh, question from the YouTube live chat. You Betcha asks, do a lot of people go missing in Alaska, Mike, because they're underestimating the power of nature? Are they just city slickers thinking they know nature? Uh, there are certainly some... Uh, some people that are like that. And there are some people that want to get lost in the woods, you know. Uh, so those things happen. The problem is that the, the number's just too large. The, the number's too large for that to be every single case. And uh, like I said, we do have reports of people just dissipate, disappearing into thin air right in front of other people. Uh, and, you know, of course, some of these planes that just go missing out of nowhere, I mean, they're being followed along with air traffic control and then nowhere to be seen again. So, uh, yeah, there are some of those cases like that. City slickers getting lost in the woods, but it's definitely not all the cases. No, not, that's not going to add up to 16,000. There's not 16,000 no. city slickers lining up to disappear. <laughs> uh, Jim asks, can you tie in what happens in Alaska with the disappearances of people in national parks? In, well, we talked about David Politi's uh, missing yeah. 411, but in the national parks' disappearances... Uh, and what's happening in Alaska. Is there a connection there? Yeah, I mean, it's just really a uh, very, very similar phenomenon. You know, what exactly is happening here? Are they, uh, you know, is there some sort of rift happening? Are they passing through, you know, portals, time shifts, these sorts of things? Because you hear about these people that, you know, it, even people that are actually found, um, you know, they talk about, you know, I heard a noise out in the woods. I took a step off the path just to take a have a, you know, just to have a look. And I turn around, I can't find the path again. And it's like weeks later that they might be found you know, on the brink of death. Uh, so even the ones that are found, they, they have these bizarre stories. And you, know, you get things like this in Alaska, too, for sure. All right. Well, on top of everything else, you've got a lake monster up there. Iliamna? Is that what, uh, is, is that what it's called? Yeah, Iliamna. Iliamna? Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a freshwater uh, monster, right? How, how, tell me about it. How, what does it look like, supposedly? Yeah, um, you know, people compare it to uh, you know Loch Ness monster, you know, uh, Nessie, so they call it Illy. Uh, but uh, uh, of course, again, very large in nature. It's like a uh, like a light grayish in color. So when it was first really being witnessed, uh, was was from the air in 1940s, and uh, you know people were thinking that there was some you know either maybe a strange boat in the water, like they're, when they're viewing it from the air, or maybe there was a plane that had gone down, because they had that metallic type of color to it. Um, but then they weren't finding anything. 
So one of these uh, inter- interesting cases with uh, with Illy was you know, one of these individuals who had seen it uh, a couple of different times, and he was a really reputable uh, guy. Uh, God, I forget his first name. The last name was uh, Crafty Shuts. And um, he was a, uh, a pastor and a teacher and all, all these different things, but also a pilot. And he had seen it from the air over the lake. Called up one of his, one of his buddies on the ground. Hey, I see this thing. You know, go out there in the water. So he takes his float plane out on the water, uh, sets up some different hooks and things like this on the float plane, and he's he's out there on uh, uh, on the edge of the plane, and all of a sudden something grabs a hold of the hooks, mm-hmm. knocks him off the plane, drags the plane across the lake. They finally find the plane later on, and the hooks that he had uh, put in there these were like big tuna hooks, like you know, big twelve inchers. They were completely straightened out. They're like no longer hooks. Uh, you know, plane was damaged. It's you know bizarre incident. So they're talking this up to to Italy. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, the first thing I think of when I think of a, a large freshwater fish that reaches that length, you know, I think of maybe a sturgeon uh, or an e- an eel of some sort. I don't know if they do. They have eels in Alaska. They do. Yeah. Yeah. But smaller, not you know massive like this. Right. Nothing that's going to straighten out a 12-inch hook, a tuna hook. Has it ever been seen out of the water or is it strictly It's strictly been in the water, yeah. They don't see it outside the water. Anyone ever been attacked by it? Uh, No. No, You don't have any reports like this. These are just like sightings in the water. Um, You know, the the only damage that's really been caused is by this, uh, to this plane where, uh, uh, you know, they tried to catch the thing, but you know, people will see you know, maybe a head pop out of the water sometimes and kind of go back in. Uh, there were some there were some witnesses to this I, about five or six years ago. There was a, a news story that ran up in Alaska. Where, you know, people said that they had seen it just off the uh, just off the shore. Hmm. Um, Sasquatch. We've got to talk about Sasquatch. They must be, I mean, unbelievably huge up there. I mean, there's the Pacific Northwest Sasquatch, and then. Uh, the ones seen in Alaska are they even bigger than the the, the ones in, let's say, Washington State? <laughs> yeah, everything seems to be bigger in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's like Texas; everything's bigger there. Right, right, right. Yeah, and Alaska's uh, you know two and a half times the size of Texas. So, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, you know, you do have a lot of, of course, the you know, traditional Sasquatch sightings. Uh, people you know find the prints or they. You know, see you know Bigfoot walking through their backyard, this sort of thing. Uh, you have different variations of of this. You have like the, the Bushman, the, uh, the, uh, the Hairy Man, which is uh, that's an interesting story uh, with uh, Portlock, Alaska. It was an old uh, uh, cannery, salmon cannery, and it was in operation for quite a few decades there in the uh, early to mid twentieth century. And <clears throat> excuse me. And they were warned, don't go out in the woods, especially at night, because this, what they were calling the hairy man, uh, would, would get you. And this was, it was passed down through the native lore, but there were times where they were finding body parts of somebody who had been mauled. There's no, uh, you know, one of the ideas is, okay, was it a bear? Well, there's no claw marks from a bear. And there's just a, you know, like a severed arm off on the side, not, not clean severed, but like been ripped out of the person's body. Yikes! Uh, you know, bodies washing up on shore. You know, where are these? You know, what's happening to these people? And so it scared off, uh, you know, the workers there, and it became a ghost town. 
Really? Wow. Um, yeah, we, we're supposed to believe that Sasquatch is, you know, shy and uh, um, maybe a vegetarian or, you know, communes with nature, really doesn't want anything to do with humans. These things sound like, I mean, complete savages, like cannibals or something. Well, the, the hairy man... For sure, but most of the other ones uh, you know, tend to just—they do tend to keep themselves, and you know, there's a lot of room for them to roam around. Uh, but then you have the others, like the Kushtika, which uh, very large in nature, but it's half man, half otter, which is a you know, very different makeup. But it has a lot of uh, Wendigo-type properties in that you know, lures people out into the woods, and then either one devours them, or two, could change them into another Kushtika, uh, which is very troubling for the, the natives in the area, because if, if you don't, uh, part of their tradition is, if you don't die as a human, then your soul can't go on into the afterlife. So if you become a Kushtika, then your soul is essentially damned. So, uh, you know, very concerning for them. Half man, half otter? Yeah, it's a, it's a real different kind of in image but uh, yeah these long talons for nails um makes this really crazy kind of whistling sound uh, as far as like communication but apparently it does have a bit of a human voice too that it can that it can portray to to lure people into the woods uh, do they have skinwalkers up there um no not uh not the type of skinwalkers that we would con uh, consider traditionally down like a skinwalker ranch area that sort of thing um they uh Kushtika, again, kind of more like the Wendigo, um, trying to th shape. Yeah, they don't really have too many shapeshifter legends up there, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Do the um, indigenous people up there, um, are they open about talking about these these creatures, or, or do you have to uh, really gain their trust first? Um, some are. I mean, it's it's one of those, like, um, you know, our... our traditional uh, you know, Native Americans down here, what, what would be considered the lower, lower 48. I mean, they're all Native Americans, but, you know, Alaska's Native Alaskan part of <laughs> Native Americans. Um, you know, a lot of them are very hesitant to share their their stories. You know, there are certain um, uh, certain legends and stories and secrets within the tribes that they don't want you know, to become public knowledge. But we get a hold of some of these stories. Sometimes people are willing to share um, since I you know, released the book, I've had uh, you know, several of them reach out to me to give me a little bit more insight into some of these different uh, legends. And when it comes to you know, even the, the portal activity, you know, they're confirming for me that, uh, yes, this is even something that was within the native legend and lore, the stories that have been passed down over the years. Yes, these things do happen. All right, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, that's available wherever fine books are sold, Amazon.com, of course. Uh, just got a couple of minutes here. Uh, tell us about the Connected Universe Portal. Yeah, Connected Universe Portal, thank you for asking. That is my online learning platform. Uh, we have a number of different courses out there. One is on shadow entities. There's another on, uh, on ancient Egypt. Uh, but we have a lot of uh, information on the, the back end, which is the member, member portal site. We have weekly classes out there where you know, we talk on a number of different esoteric topics. Uh, we have you know, a plethora of, of articles 
on a variety of topics as well, as well as uh, we have behind-the-scenes video sneak peeks, uh, things like that, monthly Q&A video. So a lot, a lot of information that in, is very interactive with, with the entire group out there. Connecteduniverseportal.com, and of course there is MikeRickSecker.com as well. Mike, a great pleasure to meet you. We'll have to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate this. All right. Thank you. Uh, all right. Back next week with uh, John Russell, we'll talk about haunted objects. And uh, Ali Siadatan, documentary filmmaker, will talk about uh, UFO disclosure from a biblical perspective. My thanks to Carlos and Ryan as well. Great to see you again, Carlos, in person. In the meantime, Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Moo over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.